In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. This is the third part in our series on the sentencing of Jen Shaw, and we now finally have a sentence. So our first part of our series gave a background on what the scheme was, provided a comparison to another co-defendant in Jen Shaw's case. Our second part went over the sentencing memorandums, so Jen Shaw's sentencing memorandums and her arguments as to why she believed she deserved a lower sentence, and then the government's sentencing memorandum where they submitted reasons why they believe Jen deserved 10 years. Now we are at the sentencing, but before we dive in, let's talk about some lighthearted updates. Do you want to talk about the Crappens show? Yes. And as my usual typical disclaimer, my voice is just, it's a problem today. Ceci and I are super excited. As soon as the Watch What Crappens live show tickets came out, we both got tickets. Ceci will be front row in LA. I will be front row in Austin. I went last year and I've been a fan of Crappens and listened to their shows, but I'd never seen a live show before last year. And I took my husband with me and he doesn't watch Housewives like I do. And he was laughing out loud and was like, these guys are so talented. It's just at another level to see them live. It's super fun. And you're hanging out with a bunch of people that you already have something in common with when you go. It's great. Yeah. I I took Avery as well. And he was dying of laughter the entire time. So I highly recommend it as well. And we will be at those shows. And then I wanted to talk about our next episode. So I'm going to be away for trial. I can't really record during that time. So Angela is going to do a solo episode. Do you want to talk about what you're going to be covering in that episode? Yeah, we're going to be covering what we know of the Lisa Hochstein divorce. I'm going to post on the Docket Lawyers LinkedIn page. And if you're family law attorneys, especially in Florida, if you have something that you might want to contribute, obviously, I don't know how much we're going to get, what it's going to say. I don't have the whole episode outline done yet. But if there's some that fit in with what we're going to do, I'm going to have my husband with his fabulous voice read them in and we will read your name and give the name of your law firm just so we can... Or place of employment. Yeah, or place of employment. (laughs) I thought this was a good opportunity to maybe get some contribution from other people and we will miss her while she is out for trial. 
And I will miss everyone. Okay, so what has happened to lead us to here? Just a brief recap. So others were indicted in this case before Jen Shaw was, and they pled, and some of them even received sentences. Then Jen Shaw was arrested and indicted, arrested like we saw on the show. She pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud on the eve of her rescheduled trial. Now we're in the middle of this sentencing process. We went over the memorandums. And what we're covering now is what happened at the hearing on January 6th. However, if you want to know anything about all things Jen Shaw, please listen to our prior episodes. This is only going to talk about the sentencing hearing, not everything else. So do you want to give a rundown on our prior Jen Shaw episodes? We have so many. Episode 6. Shaw Squad Fraud, The Arrest of Jin Shaw. So as the title suggests, this was about her arrest, and that was March 2021. That was when we all first learned that she was arrested. <laughs> what a day that was. And then episode 11, Jin Shaw Fraud, The Pretrial Motions. So this was about some certain evidence that they were trying to keep out, and we discuss both sides' motions, and it was pretty interesting to see what they might be arguing in the case. And then episode 30, Shaw and Order, Sentencing. I think this is one of our favorite episodes. It discusses the sentencing process, but then also goes into various of Jen Shaw's co-defendants and what sentences they received and what their background was, involvement in the scheme, etc. It's very interesting if you want to learn more about the scheme and Jen Shaw's other co-defendants. Then episode 31, Shaw and Order, The Reunion. So this was last season's reunion. They actually kind of spoke about the scheme and... Jen tried to defend herself and again plead her innocence. So we went through every statement that she made about the scheme and provided evidence either to refute it or support it and give our personal thoughts on what she was saying. Episode 32, Sean Order the Motions. So this was right before trial was supposed to begin. They both filed motions in limine seeking to exclude certain evidence from the trial. And we went over those and those were really about what they would be arguing at trial. Episode 40, Jen Shaw's Guilty Plea. So this goes over everything that she pled guilty to, what that entails, what sentence range they agreed to, etc. And now, and now we're... Yeah, this series. <laughs> yeah. So just to remind people, Ceci and I weren't there with our jobs. We couldn't make it to go observe the sentencing. But this is not... Like, for example, the Johnny Depp trial, which was televised, federal court doesn't allow cameras in any federal court. It's open to the public, but the Southern District of New York has very strict rules about laptops, phones. Even if you're an attorney, you have to get a special order from the judge that allows you to bring those things in. We weren't there. Recording isn't allowed. So what we've been able to do is look through the people that reported that were there. Some amateur reporters. Like there's a really great summary from Reddit that I'm going to read. And then multiple news agencies that were there reporting. And then the inner city press that was there and that has been covering this the whole time. So Ceci's done a great job of piecing those together because a lot of them picked up different things from the sentencing. So that's how we have the information because we don't have the transcript yet. Right. So this is all hearsay. We don't even know if what people are reporting was accurate or correct or heard correctly. There were some reporters that I think were given press access, which I had never heard of. And I spoke to friends that clerked in the Southern District of New York. I tried finding how press got their phones. So some people were live tweeting. But even then, it's really hard. Court reporters 
get it right and they have a really hard job. So someone with their cell phone trying to live tweet things, I can only imagine that they missed some things and got some quotes wrong. This is just a general summary and we'll see what happens when we get the official transcript. I found this on our beloved Bravo Real Housewives subreddit. And this is from Reddit user Bulgariana Grande, which is total clever name. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> she or he or they went into the courtroom and they described it as one of the most bewildering, surreal mornings of my life. I sat behind coach, Jen's brother, nephew, the therapist, and she is giving us some highlights of what she wrote down in her notebook. Pre-sentencing, she says she got there around 7.45. They let us in at 8.30 a.m. Met a few Bravo fans there. Quote, I lock eyes with Coach Omar and some other family members as they walk around the room. They're all in all black, and it definitely feels like a funeral slash wake. This was the moment where it felt real. Around 9.35, Jen walks into the courtroom. Honestly, she's gorgeous in real life. No other housewives present. And I just kind of liked that because it sets the scene of just a person that is there watching. And Ceci, you've actually been in the Southern District of New York. I haven't. I practice a lot in federal court and federal courthouses tend to be very nice. They tend to look oh, like beautiful. Yeah. What you would imagine a courthouse on TV that when you're a little kid and you thought of a fancy courthouse, that's what they look like. The federal courthouses oh, yeah. are very nice. And it's uh, very intimidating when you walk in and there's a separate entrance for counsel and then a separate entrance for public or if you're a juror. And people DM'd us and I was trying to give them tips. You have to check in your cell phone. It's security. They give you a little coin with a number on it. It's very old school. It's like a old school coach hack. So just picture like a drizzly Manhattan cold morning, people waiting in line, there's security, you have to go through a metal detector, they check your bag, but you have to check your cell phone, you know, people are buzzing, you're like, oh, where do we go? What courtroom do we go? Some of the security guards are nice, some of them are mean and tell you you can't take in your charger, <laughs> things like that. It's just such a surreal experience, but it's a very beautiful courtroom and their courthouse and then the courtrooms are just amazing. You know, yeah. the wooden benches, very ornate. Federal courthouses really set the tone and the aura of authority. When you have a proceeding in a federal courtroom, it really does set the scene. A lot of gravitas when you're in a federal courtroom. It's high drama, too. The procedure is very dramatic. A lot of procedure. And so I read from some reports that there were so many people in attendance that they had to do an overflow room where they live streamed what was going on. So I guess that was the only live stream going on was between different courtrooms. As soon as the judge comes in, it's the all rise. And then the judge walks in and then the bailiff or the deputy says everyone can be seated. And then it's immediate silence. Mm -hmm. And I read one of the various reporters that was like, and then we were all just dead silent. It gives the proceedings the dignity they deserve in those types of situations. And similarly, it was the judge who said, before you present your case, I want everyone to know that Jen Shaw is a real person and not a reality show figure. People should not confuse the character she played on an entertainment show with the person I have before me. He said the other is acting and this is reality. And I think that was good to set the tone and set the stage. Some of our fans on Instagram were like, why isn't he considering that? And I think that's fair not to consider it like we've talked about before. He doesn't know the inner workings 
of the show. All he can do is consider what is before him and the evidence. He can't go watch the show. You know, it has been edited. We're not going to sit here and pretend it hasn't. So I think it was important for him to do that. And he acknowledged, like, we have a lot of people here today, and it's probably because you're fans of her on the show, but she's a person. I liked that. I I liked that, too, because I felt like it was the judge setting the tone, saying, look, I'm going to look at this person as an individual the same way I look at everybody else. There's maybe more interest in the proceeding because she's been on TV, but this is a human being in front of us. I'm doing this from various reportings, and I believe the judge said that he thought something between the 36 months that Jen Shaw wanted and the 10 years that the government wanted was appropriate. So as soon as he said that, we could all be like, okay, it's definitely going to be between three and 10 years. Let's see how this goes. Then Jen Shaw's counsel is who presents first. And she immediately addressed the fact that this is about victims. She, according to one reporter, said, we are here for one reason, the innocent people who have suffered. There was some discussion about how Jen never spoke to the victims. And here the judge cut off Jen Shaw's counsel almost immediately and said the fact that Jen Shaw never spoke to the victims actually cut against her because didn't she not speak to the victims because she was so high up in the conspiracy and John Shaw's counsel had to say, yes, Your Honor, my client acknowledges this and accepts it as true. It's interesting when the judge steps in as you're presenting your case because it's like, OK, you actually read this. I love you it. Have an understanding. Yeah. yeah, you have an understanding of what's going on. You have to really think on your feet on how you're going to respond to the judge in a respectful way. In this instance, though, I think he might have cut her off too soon. I have a feeling what she was trying to say is Jen Shaw hasn't spoken to the victims However, if she could today, she would say, I think that's what she was going to say before she got cut off. Otherwise, I don't know why she said it, because it's not a good argument. Yeah, I don't I don't know. And I think Ceci might be right. Jen's attorney did a great job defending her. You can't make up things or make facts that aren't real. You have to work with what you've got. And I think her attorney has demonstrated she's more than smart enough to pivot if They've made an argument and it wasn't working. And when we went through the government's memorandum and explained those arguments, they were very powerful. I talked about how if you are able to turn your opponent's argument against them, that can be incredibly powerful. And that was one of the arguments the government turned against Jen Shaw by saying, yeah, she didn't talk to the victims because she was so high up in the scheme. That goes towards the greater weight of a sentence as opposed to a lesser. Right. And that's why I can't believe that 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 she was trying to make that argument again if she actually was because the government refuted that point in their memorandum. So it would be weird to just repeat that argument in front of the court. Yeah. But I don't know. She got cut off. So we didn't get to see where she was going with that argument. But we also don't know what Jen wanted her to emphasize because when you're an attorney, true, you you have to speak on behalf of your client and your client is actually the one calling the shots. Now, obviously, you're not going to put a witness on the stand that you know is going to lie. You're not going to do things that are unethical. You're not going to violate the law or the court's rules. But within that framework, if your client wants you to make a particular argument and you don't agree with it, you can tell the client, I don't agree with this. You can try to say, I can't represent you if we can't agree on these courses of actions and try to withdraw. But for the most part, you have to go with the course of action that your client wants to take as long as it fits within all those other things. And so if Jen was adamantly saying, I never talked to the victims and perhaps wanted her to emphasize that because like we've talked about with white collar crime before, it's much harder to conceptualize 
the pain and the harm you're causing with a white collar criminal because they're so like, attenuated from it. They're not actually going up and mugging your grandma on the street. And Jen was so high up. So maybe she was trying to make an argument like she hasn't talked to the victims. So she was struggling to conceptualize and until she read the mm-hmm. victim statements. You know, I think what Ceci is saying is right. She probably was going to follow that up with something else, but got cut off. Yeah. She just, from what I could tell, just let it go, though. Yeah. Probably because it was like, okay, let's just move on. (laughs) So her counsel said Jen won't forget what kind of damage she's caused. The victims worked hard and tried their best and their lives are forever mangled. For the rest of Ms. Shaw's life, she will remember their names. I think there was a reference to her spending the past month reading all of the victims' names and there being thousands. Then her counsel turned to talking about her background, about how she came from a working class family and identifies with the victims. It says every day since she has pled guilty, she has read names and prayed for forgiveness, but she cannot forgive herself. She understands she cannot undo these things and the things she has caused their families, but she does acknowledge today is about justice. And they say that it wasn't until the government presented all its evidence that Jen came to grips with her ongoing fraud. And so this is kind of what we're talking about, that she didn't really, according to her counsel, and we've actually talked about this before, didn't come to grips with the extent of the crime until she saw everything against her. And so she goes on. It says Miss Shaw was lost for months in an echo chamber of her own denial. She found herself staring at her truth and the depth of her wrongs, and she hurt them and they were real and there was no more lying. It says Shaw is eager to pay her debt to society, and when she is a free woman again, she will pay her debts to the victims, and she promises to set an example. At one point, Jen Shaw's attorney started to talk about all the good things her client has done in recent times, and Judge Stein here cut her off again and says, what good things could she be doing? Calling elderly people and selling them business opportunities And they would max out their credit cards and get the person to put down an additional card and upsell them for products. If there is good in that, I want to hear it. And Jen Shaw's counsel clarified that she wasn't talking about the crimes or the telemarketing here. She was talking about her volunteer work, sort of like we touched on in her sentencing memorandum. She said it was describing her selling seminars, teaching people how to be good in business. This was before she began committing the crimes. Yeah, I think I understand why the judge interrupted because... Jen's attorney was saying Jen had focused on all the good things her company had done. And the judge is like, what are you talking well, about? Well, I only saw that in one. Sorry to interrupt you. I only saw that in one report. I saw it in a couple when the lawyer said Jen's company had done good. He cut her off and point blank asked her what good. This is probably the most public case that lawyers on both sides have handled. And then typically when you're in a courtroom for a federal sentencing, There's not that many people in there. It's pretty empty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's nobody there. And here the world is watching and mistakes happen. Yeah, mistakes happen. And I would assume that would make you a lot more nervous, especially with all the people there. And Jen's attorney has Jen sitting right next to her. Imagine the pressure. It's like something you say or do could give her another year or two in prison if you don't defend it. That's a lot of stress and pressure. And the world's watching. And then there's a bunch of Bravo fans in there. Yeah. You have to, like, really make sure you're getting your words correctly. And that is difficult. Even I have that difficulty when I'm reading. <laughs> so so then I know there was more that was discussed. I don't have it all in here because I couldn't find it in multiple sources. But I remember 
that in the inner city press's tweets, there was a discussion of her love of trinkets. I love that word now. I'm going to say that my shopping is just a love of trinkets. Like you're a crow that's collecting shiny things. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Little Mermaid. Look at this stuff. (laughs) Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Yeah. So there was some discussion of love of trinkets. So from the Reddit user Bulgariana Grande, she quoted in here, Jen tried to fill the void in her life with shiny trinkets. If she looked like a million bucks, she could feel like a million bucks. And then it switches to the prosecution. And this is Robert Sobelman was arguing this. So he started by reminding the court that Jen was in charge of a telemarketing scheme that targeted some of the nation's most vulnerable people. She ran her own floor, trained and hired people here in Manhattan for years. She was in New York half a year telling people how to do this. He continued, Jen Shaw was committing crimes day in and day out, making money off people who had little to give. She worked hard to make as much money for herself at the expense of vulnerable people. Every cooperating witness said the person with the most power was Jen Shaw. Oh, and then they also added something, and again, this is just from tweets, that she went so far as to get Stu Chains to lie in the FTC deposition, and it was only, it wasn't for his benefit, it was for her benefit, so they wanted to highlight that as well. There were several reports that the prosecution noted that a trial would have been devastating, and I think Mm. you guys from listening to our Previous episodes would agree with that. The prosecution pointed out that Jen followed the previous fraud cases. Yeah, I think they said that it would have been a month-long trial had it gone to trial, which is a really long time That's for cr- one person. That's a really long time. And then they said, they, the prosecution pointed out something that has bothered me this whole time, which was that Jen didn't need to do this. Mm-hmm. Coach makes really great money. She didn't need to do this. Prosecution pointed out that, and this is reported in several things, there isn't one expression of true remorse, not one, by Jen. Oh, yeah. And we have this in our Instagram post. I should have remembered. They also apparently argued that there hasn't even been evidence of her remorse, not in the text messages, and that her own counsel hasn't been able to show that she was sorry. So, and the judge, on. yeah, the judge noted this. The judge noted that while she seemed remorseful about her family, he still didn't believe that she has much remorse for the victims. So Jen ended up speaking directly to the judge. She was very tearful. According to reporters, she was sobbing. She said she was deeply sorry for her crimes and wanted to apologize to the victims. She said that she's not the carefully created and edited character fancy weekly on The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. She said, most people identify me with my public persona. It has nothing to do with reality. I would like to take this opportunity to speak about who I actually am. I am Jennifer Shaw, daughter of immigrants. She thanked her family for her upbringing, which she said was rooted in mutual respect, fulfillment of obligations, humility and generosity, loyalty and respect. She said, I have come to terms that I have gone against these core values and I am deeply sorry for what I have done. I want to apologize to all the victims and families, and I take full responsibility for the harm I caused, and will pay full restitution to all the victims. I recognize that some of you lost hundreds, and others lost thousands, and I promise to repay. She said, I struggled to accept responsibility because I delusionally thought I did nothing wrong. She said, I believed I was manipulated. Those are lies that I manufactured. After therapy, counseling, and medication, I can see the situation. I wish I did better. 
I am sorry. This is from Bulgariana Grande on the Bravo Housewives subreddit, who was there, said that Jen Shaw claimed that Bravo made her say the Shaw Amazing tagline. And Bulgariana Grande specifically notes, I don't believe that. I, I kind of agree with her. <laughs> she agrees that Jen was verklempt with an extremely shaky voice and could barely finish her sentence. According to Bulgariana Grande, she had emotion that mainly showed when she was talking about her family and then the victims were not particularly emotionally emphasized, which I thought was really interesting because I just last night finished the Bernie Madoff documentary, which was really good, the new one that's out. And one of the commentators on that who interviewed Bernie in prison on multiple occasions, this really intelligent woman whose name I'm forgetting, said that she had discussed this with multiple psychologists afterwards. We're not going to armchair diagnose, and the woman on TV didn't either. But she said that when she talked to Bernie and in person, he expressed emotion about his family and that the psychologist she talked to said that that was, you know, a sign of being sad that you lost your family's respect and adoration. And that was why maybe it was coming across more than towards the victims. But I think that's fair. We've talked about before. She only saw the victims as names on a spreadsheet a lot of the times. Yeah, it's not fair as in good. Sessie doesn't mean it's good, but it's like fair as in that it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conceptually, it makes sense. Right, right. Like if you only see names on a spreadsheet versus your family, (laughs) I think it makes sense that she's crying over her family. But she can still be remorseful, of course. At the end, I think the judge said, how are you going to pay restitution? I think Jen agreed to give the proceeds of her free Jen and post-arrest merchandise to the victims, but then also gestured to someone who was there and said that this was her agent that was there. And I think it was an uh, alluding to the fact that she might do more interviews or, I don't know. One of the tweets said that the judge asked her through the show and she said she was still on the show. And I saw multiple reports of that. Yeah. Yeah. We had multiple reports that seemed to indicate the judge was questioning about if she had turned the proceeds over And the judge instructed the government to ensure that anything she does after she goes to prison isn't proceeds from the fraud, as in that gets turned over. Bulgariana Grande, her report that when Jen stated her intent to repay victims, the judge asked her how, and that there was a long pause to which Jen answered, she'll, quote, use her platform. And Bulgariana Grande said, a guy next to me and I nearly laughed. By the way, good thing you didn't. You get in big trouble for that in federal court. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're glad you didn't. Keep those and, in. And we thank you for this really helpful Reddit post. All right. So moving on. So then the judge speaks and says, there is no question that from 2012 and 2021, Ms. Shaw was in a conspiracy that took tens of millions of dollars from elderly people. She ran a sales floor. It says she didn't speak to the victim. It was only because she was high up in the conspiracy. I do remember some of the texts she sent belittling the victims. She brazenly continued and hid her activities, including moving operations overseas. I did not sentence Ms. Shaw as the government requests, but I do believe it takes into account all of the factors of 355-3A, which is a statute that we mentioned during our second part. I'm keeping you on supervised release for five years, Ms. Shaw, to make sure you don't end up committing another crime. And this is in addition to the 78 months sentence. Says, Ms. Shaw, you have the right to appeal. Just tell Ms. Chaudhry, which is her counsel. Jen Shaw's counsel steps in and says, Ms. Shaw's manager is here as a friend and please designate her to prison in Texas. It has RDAP, R-D-A-P, and its closest minimum security 
And then Judge Stein says, I'm not going to designate a specific facility. I'll just say Texas region. And I think that's because there's a lot that goes into that. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of specifics you have to work out with the Bureau of Prisons to designate a specific facility. Yeah. And we will discuss those. So then Jen Shaw's counsel gave a statement and said Shaw is at peace with her prison sentence and vows to pay her debt to victims. Jen Shaw deeply regrets the mistakes that she has made and is profoundly sorry to the people she has hurt. Jen has faith in our justice system and understands that anyone who breaks the law will be punished and accepts the sentence as just. Jen will pay her debt to society. And when she is a free woman again, she vows to pay her debt to the victims harmed by her mistakes. Oh, yeah. And then she has, the- she has to report February 17th, 2023. Yeah. So people asked us if we were surprised by the sentence. I think it's important to touch on what the goal of sentencing is. Why do we punish people for crimes? Do you want to read from the federal guidelines, 18 U.S.C. 3553A? Yes. The court shall impose a sentence sufficient but not greater than necessary to comply with the purposes set forth in paragraph two of this subsection. The court, in determining the particular sentence to be imposed, shall consider... The nature and circumstances of the offense and the history and characteristics of the defendant, the need for the sentence imposed to reflect the seriousness of the offense, to promote respect for the law, and to provide just punishment for the offense, to afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct, to protect the public from further crimes of the defendant, and to provide the defendant with the needed educational or vocational training, medical care, or other correctional treatment in the most effective manner. Which, I mean, put simply, that's as little as possible, but as much as necessary. And then the specific factors we read that can be considered. So, I mean, that is what the judge thought was fair under the purpose of why defendants are sentenced. So I don't think our opinion on the sentencing really matters. It is what it is. We were not the judge. There's a lot of stuff that was redacted. Some of the points that Jen's counsel made, I don't know how much weight I would have given them, but they are legitimate. I mean, it is our tax dollars paying for her to be in jail. Five years supervised release is a long time. And six and a half years is a long time. I mean, there are certain things that she can do to try to get time off of her sentence. She's still going to serve 85 percent. That's the federal law. And Ceci will talk more about some of those details. But five years supervised release is a lot. Six and a half years in prison, even if she only serves like five of that, is a lot. It's minimum security, but you lose a lot of your dignity and you don't have control over anything. You don't have control over how often you get to talk to your family, when you get to see your family. You don't have control over when you get up or when you go to sleep. You don't have control over who your bunkmate is. You don't have control over what you get to eat. You don't have control over what you wear. You don't have a glam squad. You might get a glam squad, but it's not your glam squad. (laughs) It is not the same. Minimum security prison is not the same as, you know, high security prison, but it is still prison. There is an enormous loss of control and dignity and just basic things that a lot of us don't think about and take for granted. And she's going to live in very close quarters. I think that there's multiple reports talking about how, oh, this prison doesn't even have cells. Just because you're not behind bars in an eight by 10 cell doesn't mean (laughs) that you're not in jail. It's more of a dormitory style and you don't have any personal space. There's nothing private. It's not going to be fun. No. Yeah. So then at the hearing, like we mentioned, Jen Jen Shaw's counsel requested that Jen be entered into the RDAP. I assume it's RDAP program, which is a residential drug abuse program. And that is a voluntary 500-hour 
9- to 12-month program of group therapy and individual therapy for federal prisoners with substance abuse problems. As an incentive to get prisoners to participate in this, federal law allows a reduction in the sentence for RDAP graduates of up to one year. So they can get up to one year reduced sentence for participating in this program. And it's pretty intense. It seems pretty stringent. It's not a walk in the park. However, space is limited in the program. There's a long wait list. So it's not guaranteed that Jen will be in just by asking for it. One of the factors of being accepted is that she has to have a verifiable substance use disorder. And I'm not going to sit here and guess what it is, whether or not she has one. That is for her to prove, not for me to prove. So let's talk about what supervised release is. Because like we mentioned, she gets five years of supervised release. It's not fun. The conditions of the supervision set the parameters of the supervision. They define the sentence to be executed, establish behavioral expectations for defendants, and provide the probation officer with tools to keep informed and bring about improvements in the defendant's conduct and condition. Probation officers recommend and implement conditions and monitor defendants' compliance with those conditions. And then they also work with defendants to facilitate the reintegration into the community as law-abiding and productive members of society. I don't imagine just from viewing Jen and reading all the stuff that we learned from the text messages that she's going to be an ideal inmate at first. Maybe she will. I don't know. But I would assume that she's going to screw up a couple times and maybe have some personality conflicts with some people. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe she'll be perfect. Let's say she serves five and a half years. When you get out, you are monitored. There's a lot of stuff that you have to do. For example, you have to consistently report to your probation officer as instructed. And the probation officer assesses numerous factors, including your residence, the identity of the other residents where you live, who visits you, your employment, work hours, reasons for any absences from work, financial statements, changes in cash inflows, outflows, unusual expenditures, associations with others, whether the defendant has pro-social or negative associations. You're going to have to do things to show you're being a good citizen verifying any change in residence, any change in employment, expenses, community service hours, attendance at community-sponsored drug and alcohol program, registering an automobile. Like, they're basically checking up on every single thing that you do, and you have to justify and get approval for any changes you make. If she wants to move back to Utah, she'll have to apply, get permission, go to Utah, explain exactly where she's going to be living, say who's going to be living in the household with her. She's going to be expected to work to pay her restitution. If she can't get a job right away, she's going to have to actively demonstrate her efforts to get a job. She's going to have to be honest about all of her bank accounts, any income that she has coming in. If she tries to do some Instagram influencing when she gets out and there's any kind of income from that, she's going to get in trouble if she doesn't report it. Yes, she got six and a half years. Yes, she may only serve five, but five-year supervised release is big. That's a lot of stuff. She's yeah, not- so it's like 10 to 11 years of being monitored. Yeah. It's not like she gets out and she's free. That's not a thing. She's not free, Jen Shaw. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so moving on, she also has agreed to forfeit $6.5 million, and this was when she pled guilty, $6.5 million and pay restitution of up to $9.5 million. And we got a lot of questions asking what the difference was between restitution and forfeiture. We have touched on this before, but figured we would answer again. Yeah, one of our previous episodes, we really went into detail with this, and it's really complicated. I was mistaken. I thought when she agreed to the $6.5 million in forfeiture that she had been able to pony that up from somewhere, that she'd had it stashed or had the proceeds of the fraud. I thought when she agreed to that, that she had figured out a way to come up with it. And it doesn't appear that that's the case. So she's going to owe $6.5 million. I mean, they're going to sell off her handbags, take away any accounts, reclaim everything that they can and put that towards forfeiture. But it's not going to be $6.5 million worth. Just because she forfeits that money doesn't mean that it goes directly towards restitution. So the purpose of restitution is to compensate a victim, while the purpose of forfeiture and fines is to punish the defendant. Restitution is measured by the losses to victims, and forfeiture is measured by the proceeds of a criminal offense. The government determined that $6.5 million is directly traceable to the offense. Now, what the victims actually lost was up to $9.5 million. So obviously, there are other people involved in the scheme, but Jen's expected to forfeit $6.5 million. That's got to come from somewhere. Her lawyer or a team of lawyers and forensic accountants can make specific arguments to have the forfeiture applied to the restitution. But that has to be done in very specific ways. And there has to be an agreement from the government for that. And then some questions that we received, they wanted to know, can they attach liens on her assets to recoup for either of these? So she can't file for bankruptcy to get out of it. So student loans and criminal forfeiture, you can't get out of. Bankruptcy isn't, that's not going to help her. Again, this is really specific and technically difficult about attaching liens, the government will go through and see and determine what specifically were proceeds of 
the fraud and they will seize that stuff. So if there's something they haven't, it's out there, like if she's got a garage somewhere with a bunch of cars in it or, I don't know, a box of diamonds that she bought with the proceeds of the fraud and the government finds it, they will seize it and it'll go to auction, go through a whole process that'll be applied to the forfeiture if there's more stuff out there. As far as attaching liens to things that aren't the proceeds from the fraud, that's not really a thing. But it's really complicated and I can't give you all the details of that right now. It's just, it's a really complicated technical process. Yeah. And then someone asked, how does repayment work? And just adding on to everything Angela said, they're not going to make it so that she only has to eat Taco Bell for the rest of her life, which would be great in my opinion. But they're going to make sure she can still make a livable wage, but then they just take from that wage a certain percentage. Like we've talked about with Dana Pam. Yes. Which, you know, did you know $25,000 I think she pays something like two fifty a month towards her million plus in restitution that she has to pay, and that is taken out of her check. And so that's another thing. When Jen is on supervised release and she's reporting all of her income, any money that she has, all of that stuff, that goes into the calculation of how much she can pay towards the amounts that she owes. Okay, so then what happens next? So Jen Shaw's counsel did request a specific prison, which we'll get into in a moment. But the assignment is up to the Bureau of Prisons, and it is up to a number of factors, like if they have a bed available for the prisoner, the prisoner's security designation. Are they high risk? Do they need to be in maximum security, low security? What programs does the prisoner need? Mental health needs, medical needs. Did the prisoner request a faith-based need, recommendations of the sentencing court, and other security concerns of the Bureau of Prisons? These are a lot of factors that all go into deciding which prison the defendant, I guess they call prisoner, requests. So Jen requested PC Bryan facility in Bryan, Texas. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, it actually is called a camp. It's called a correctional camp. If she calls it a camp, it's not because she's just quoting Teresa. It's in the name. I was initially shocked when she asked for a Texas prison because I live in Texas. Texas has not been doing great with taking good care of its prisoners. Google Texas prisons and air conditioning. It is very hot in Texas, and the prisons, a lot of them do not have air conditioning, which honestly I think is horribly unfair, not just for the prisoners, but a lot of times prisons are erected in low-income communities, and the people working there are in the prison with the prisoners. So that's just horrible for everybody all around, even just honest people that are working hard at a job they're not being paid enough for that's dangerous. So I was initially shocked. But I'm sure this camp has air conditioning. I actually didn't look that up. It looks like it probably does, or at least it's open floor plan enough, but I don't know. There is an inmate admission and orientation handbook. 75 pages long. 75 pages long. And it says, this inmate handbook will provide you with information about the programs, operations, rules, and regulations of the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas. And it goes through a lot of really interesting things. It goes through your orientation. When you get there, an inmate is given a social screening by the management staff and medical screening, and inmates are immediately provided with a copy of the institution rules and regulations. And then within 28 days of arrival, inmates participate in the admission and orientation program. So Jen Shaw will be assigned to a housing unit, A unit is a self-contained inmate living area that includes both housing sections and office space for unit staff. 
Each unit is staffed by a unit team directly responsible for inmates living in the unit. The unit office staff typically includes a unit manager, case manager, correctional counselor, and unit secretary. And I remember from reading Teresa's book for our Teresa and Juicy Joe episodes about how I think in Danbury there were like four different like sort of sections or camps that you could be put in and everybody wanted to be in a certain one because it was like, oh, that one's got a newer facility or it's better. And so people would fight over who got to go there. And the goal was to get to like unit A or B. I forget which one it was. Can I read about daily inmate life? Yes. Okay. So this is what Jen Shaw will be experiencing if she ends up at this prison. So she has the responsibility to check her room. She has to make her bed. Wake up time is at 6 a.m. every day. That would kill me on the spot. Oof. They have to sweep and mop their room, remove the trash, make sure it's clean and sanitary. They have storage space. It's a locker. They cannot wear clothing not government issued or purchased in the commissary. No inmates may be issued, permitted to purchase, or have in their possession any blue, black, red, or camouflage clothing or cloth items. So commissary sales of clothing are limited to the following colors, pastel green, gray, and white. So very limited colors that you can wear. They can have one work pair of shoes, one pair of shower shoes, one athletic shoe, one pair of slippers, and one casual shoe. And it must be placed neatly under the bed. Speaking of which, there are specific rules for your room inspection. Unit officers and counselors inspect rooms daily and publish individual ratings of appearance. So hygiene is a big deal in prison. You're in close quarters. And if you do not maintain your hygiene, not only will that make you unpopular with your fellow inmates, you will get a very poor rating. And that actually goes into your good behavior rating. Okay, so there's other rules. These rules include items such as all beds are to be made daily in the prescribed manner. If a cell or room is not acceptable, disciplinary action will be taken. Unit meal rotation is ordinarily based on weekly sanitation ratings of each unit. The unit with the highest sanitation is called first, and the unit with the lowest rating is called last. So if you are not following the rules and taking your trash out, then you can get called last for meals, and you will not get the best of whatever is being offered. Each inmate is responsible for the cleaning and sanitation of her room. Everyone is responsible for cleaning up after themselves. Actually, suggestive photographs are not authorized for display outside of the individual locker or cabinet. So you can have them in your individual locker or cabinet. Provocative pictures, posters, cartoons, or any items cut out of magazines may not be displayed on the bulletin boards or in any cell or dorm. Showers are available every day, but inmates may not be in the shower during an official count. Safety shoes must be worn to work as designated in policy. Unit televisions may be viewed during established off-duty hours. During normal working hours, unit televisions may be viewed at the discretion of staff. Do you want to talk about the commissary? So I was just looking at the commissary list to see the prices of these things. So they have clothes. You can get a sports bra for $21.90. You get a white baseball cap for $6.50. You get thermal pants for $6.50. You get some drinks. Coffee for $9.30. It's probably like instant coffee. Cranberry juice will cost you almost $2. Water you can get for $0.85. You can get some refried beans for $1.55. I love reading this. You can get green salsa for $2. You get some peanuts for $0.50. Cents. 
pumpkin seeds for $1.60. I mean, this list isn't that long. This is only two pages of stuff you can get at commissary. It sounds like a lot, but it's like it's really not that much stuff. It's not like you're walking through Trader Joe's and can just grab your bag of favorite popcorn. It's pretty limited. You can get raisins, prunes, a fruit cup, green olives, white rice, brown rice. It's just this doesn't sound very appetizing. No, prison food is not good. I really felt it in my soul when I read Teresa's book as a fellow Italian and somebody who makes their own pasta sauce, makes their own noodles, and is used to a very sort of Mediterranean diet of eating. Teresa's was just horrified at the lack of fresh fruits and vegetables. But she did learn some recipes there. And there's actually some really fascinating TikTok account creators of people who have been in prison who share their really innovative prison recipes. There's a YouTuber that I've followed for a few years. Her name's Jessica Kent, and she does prison recipes on her YouTube and shows you how you do it. Chip bags can be used, or chips. Oh my like god! Crunched up chips. Can so be used many things. For a lot of bases, and yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Some of them, if I, I know, I would try them. I would try. I would try them. I'm like, it's creative. I like. I like crunch. I like a little crunch in some things. There's. I was surprised. But it doesn't look good. I wouldn't eat it every day. No, you know? but I would definitely eat a bite. They do have hot sauce in prison, so at least something. Yeah, I was gonna say the general items. I won't read all the specific items anymore. You can get letters, books, photographs, newspapers, magazines. You are allowed to purchase legal materials, and there have been many instances of prisoners revisiting their legal charges and their cases and becoming scholars themselves based on their education in prison. I was surprised at how much makeup you can get. Eyeliner, eyeshadow, mascara, blush. That's definitely not the case everywhere because I think I've mentioned that that same YouTuber I follow showed like a makeup routine using items that she received in commissary and it was like scraping magazine ink to make lipsticks. So, well, yeah, it depends. Obviously, yeah, it depends on what's available and you have to have money in your commissary. One of the things that Teresa was so horrified about at, when she was in Danbury, she didn't realize you had to like fill out an application and do all this stuff in order to get an account to be able to use the phone. And then she also didn't know that you only had a certain amount of phone time, which they probably gave it to her in the handbook, and Teresa probably didn't read it. But you're going to prison. They give you this handbook. It's 75 pages. There's all these rules. You're probably in shell shock. And Teresa didn't know that you only got a certain amount of time per month on the phone. So she used it all up in the first time she got to use the phone and then was horrified to find out that she wasn't going to be able to call her family for the rest of the month until like that time came up again. And there's no petition around it. Yeah, they have a spending limit of $360. So even though the prices of everything I read don't seem that high, and it seems like there's a lot available, $360 is not at all that much money. Yeah, no, that's not very much money. It's $360 per month. So it's not as bad as per year. That would be horrible. Not even a dollar a day. It's $360 per month is the national spending limit. And it could be further restricted locally. So you don't, you're not guaranteed $360. It all depends on the prison. So $360 a month, though, isn't that much. It's not that much. I think that's probably good. They have that restriction because that would create a huge disparity among mm -hmm. prisoners that had access to a lot more people putting money on their books or you know, and also that's like that's a huge thing that experienced criminal defense attorneys can be very familiar with how to navigate, which is getting your commissary account set up 
beforehand, getting money on your books before you go in. Yeah, that that monetary limit kind of reminded me, this is a total sidetrack, but about Drag Race, because Drag Race came out January 6th, the new season. But I've always said that it seems so unfair that they don't have a spending limit for the queens. So obviously the queens that are better connected or have more resources are going to look better on the runways. I always thought it would be so much more fair if they were forced to spend a certain amount and had to turn in their receipts. It would definitely even the playing field. So yeah, just made me think of that. They can email and it's a very restricted version of email that only allows text messages and no attachments. And there's a cost per minute fee for using that service. Another thing to add is that prisoners can make money by working in the prison. So they can make 12 cents to 40 cents an hour unless they work for Unicor, where they would then make 23 cents to $1.15 an hour. And Unicor is sort of like prison labor, prison factory labor, making furniture, racks, stainless steel food service equipment, mattresses, towels, utility bags, brooms. They can do data entry, they can make signage, and they can do printing. So she has the opportunity to make money. So then they have general visiting information and... You have to be approved before visiting. They have a list of rules that you have to follow. You have to wear certain clothing when you go make a visit. You can't wear revealing shorts, no halter tops, no bathing suit tops, no mini skirts. So you have to dress, not super conservatively, but you have to follow their rules for dressing. An inmate gets at least four hours of visiting time per month. And the warden can restrict the length of visits or the number of people who can visit at once to avoid overcrowding in the visiting room. There can be handshakes, hugs, and kisses, but they have to be in good taste, according to the rules. This came up in Teresa's book, and I think it actually came up on the show, but visitors have to be approved. So the inmate has people on a list that they have approved, and Teresa did not put Melissa on the list to come see her in prison. (laughs) So Jen Shaw will have a list of people that are allowed to come see her. Yeah, and there's restrictions. So mm-hmm. immediately, immediate family can definitely be on her list. Relatives can be on the list. You can have no more than 10 friends or associates. You can have attorneys visit. They just have categories of people that can visit, and it's not everyone. There's nothing that says fans. I guess maybe that can go into the 10 friends. So <laughs> don't think you can get into visiting Jen Shaw in prison. Yeah, and your phone calls are monitored. My very first actual paying job as an attorney was when I was interning at the district attorney's office, and I would have to listen to a lot of jail calls on these cases. And I could not believe the stuff that prisoners would say, knowing they were being recorded, and it would even interrupt them like every, I don't know, seven to 10 minutes saying, this call is being recorded by the blah, 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 county facility, you know, whatever. And then they just go right on with whatever thing they were saying, either implicating themselves in another crime but I also couldn't believe how many men were in the county jail and had a wife and multiple girlfriends. And then they were talking to all of them. I would get so mad listening to those. I was like, I want to just, I want to send these calls. <laughs> to it's like they'd have their mom putting money on their books and then their wife putting money on their books and calling them. And then two girlfriends that didn't know about it. And like nobody knew. I would get so mad listening to those calls. I mean, you have to have something to look forward to. Maybe Whitney Rose's conjugal visits. <laughs> I loved everyone being horrified. <laughs> they were like, no, like, no, you don't want a conjugal visit. Like, you don't know what I you're think saying. She knew what she was saying. She said it so straight faced, though. I know. 
if you're really interested in this, I do recommend Teresa's book, Turning the Tables. It's a quick read. It's an easy read. And it's actually well edited. Don't get the audiobook. Everyone in the comments was like, don't get the audiobook. I didn't because I guess Teresa actually reads it. It's just very easy to read and it gives you a lot of detail and information about what life was like. And obviously it's through Teresa's lens, but I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. All right. So let's go to some questions we received on our Instagram. We received hundreds when we posted asking for questions about the sentencing. One of the most popular questions we received was, why did the judge mention she could appeal? Was it a mistake? And so this is from one of the tweets. It says, Ms. Shaw, you have the right to appeal. Just tell Ms. Chaudhry. I think that might have been a mistake. Yeah, I don't want to comment on that until we have the transcript. In the plea that she made, she agreed that she would not appeal. She was given less, I think, than 14. 14 years. There's a lot of things going on during a sentencing. Her attorney specifically said, which Ceci read after the hearing, gave a statement and said that she'll accept and serve her prison sentence. I wouldn't be looking for an appeal. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think it's maybe the judge. And again, like Angela said, we don't have the transcript, but maybe the judge. It's like common yeah. to say, like, yeah. you have the right to appeal. Probably wasn't thinking. Like in one of my cases, we received an order on something. And then last week they issued another order. <laughs> we were like, wait. You already ordered on this. And the judge was like, oh, shoot, I forgot. I did already order on this. So it's like judges make mistakes. It happens. I mean, yeah, everyone involved in this process is human. No one's perfect. Sometimes Ceci and I have typos. It's a thing. There's no perfection in anything that is managed or run by humans. All right. Another question was, is there actually a law against profiting from a crime? How can people like Teresa write a book about their jail time and such? Can Jen Shaw still do a one-on-one with Andy? And this is because Judge Stein said, like we mentioned earlier, I'm concerned, Ms. Shaw, that you said your manager is here. If you intend to profit from this procedure, there should be no intention to profit from the crime. I assume the government will take steps to effectuate this. So this is totally from memory. I apologize if I get any of this not correct, but a couple states at one point did try to enact a law stating that someone that's been convicted of a crime can't write a book to profit off the crime. Then, Is it called the Son of Sam law? I think so. And then that got struck down because in the United States, we have freedom of speech, and that's a constitutional right. And even as a prisoner, you still have constitutional rights. So that got struck down. However, what the court is saying, I believe the government will make sure about this, is, for example, Teresa was able to pay all of her restitution and everything from the Bravo deals. And there were actually liens filed in the criminal case to ensure that the money that she owed, that that went to the forfeiture and the restitution. That's what I believe the judge is talking about. You're still allowed to speak and tell your story, but she's got a ton of forfeiture and restitution that she has to come up with. So anything that she gets from that, those proceeds will go to either her forfeiture or restitution and to the victims. And that's what the judge is touching on. And then the next question is, will she have tax issues now? Because we know she wasn't paying her taxes on the funds in her Kosovo accounts. If the IRS wants to use the resources to try to go after back taxes, maybe they will. With these huge amounts of restitution and forfeiture that have been ordered and that she's obligated to pay, I don't see them using the resources to do that. You know, and we talk about that more in another episode, and it still counts as income. 
So you typically do still have to pay taxes on the proceeds of a crime, and she didn't. But I don't see the government using the resources to try to put tax, but maybe they will. I don't know. So do we think Coach Shaw knew more? And the reason we're getting this so much is because in our last episode, we read through text messages where Jen Shaw said that she was going to prepare questions and answers and have Coach Shaw review them. I don't think that proves that he was involved at all. For all we know, she never asked him. For all we know, he gave her a great answer that is totally legal. We don't know. Yeah, we We don't don't know. know what happened after those text messages. And like we've said so many times, the government would go after him if they could. And I think that he's maintained his separate finances. I guess there was a report recently. It came out yesterday about how much he makes per year. It's upwards of $600,000. I think he's managing his finances just well and spending within his means. And if I had to guess, I don't think he received any of the funds from this fraudulent scheme. But what do I know? My thoughts are this. There are some things we do know about Coach Shaw. We know that he got into and graduated from law school. And we know that he has been able to achieve his career as a college football coach. You have to be really smart to do all those things. You can't just walk off the street and be a football coach. Law school is hard. The LSAT is hard. You have to be smart to be able to do those things. And being a college football coach is a ton of work. I know personally from close acquaintances who are coaching at that level, and you don't see your family. The stuff Jen said about coach being gone all the time, 100% accurate. That was not hyperbole. So like we know coach is smart, and it also seems very clear that he cares about his family. So here's my feeling on this, and this is my personal opinion. It's just an opinion. I think that if coach knew the extent of what she was doing and how illegal it was, that he would have stopped it because he would have wanted to save his family. It's not good for his reputation. They don't need the money. I don't think he had 100% idea of what was going on. Now, Jen is also a very difficult person. Did he turn, did he know more and turn a blind eye to it? That's 100% possible. People lie Mm -hmm. to themselves all the time about what their spouse is doing. Ask any lawyer that has spent any amount of time doing family law, doing divorce work, People turn a blind eye to what their spouse is doing all the time. People don't want to believe that they could be doing something that awful. Well, Jen Shaw even lied to herself. According to herself. (laughs) According to herself, lied to herself. So if she's lying to herself and ignoring that it's a criminal activity, I mean, I assume he could lie to himself that she's doing it, too, and not even care. She was a difficult person. She admitted they almost got a divorce on the show. Her and Coach Shaw doing counseling was a whole storyline with all their little activities. We don't know what part of that is real and what isn't. But we do know that Coach is smart, which goes both ways. It means like he should have known, but it's mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a difficult person. He's probably happy that she was occupying herself with something and not causing problems, maybe. We don't know exactly what he knew, but we do know the government did not indict him. And we know that the government had all of Jen's text messages, all of the co-conspirators' text messages, and all of their computers and everything else. If the government chose not to indict him, I think it's fair to assume that there wasn't enough evidence there to do that. Following up on that, can Coach Shaw's assets and wages be garnished if they remain married? And I assume that's for paying her restitution. Again, very complicated issue. Restitution goes to pay back the victims. That's Jen's liability, is to pay back the victims. The forfeiture is from the proceeds of the crime. 
it doesn't appear that Coach Shaw, from anything we've seen, really had anything that benefited from that. That was Jen buying luxury goods for herself and putting accounts in certain family members' names and acquaintances' names. So it's very complicated. If I were Coach Shaw, I would have divorced her immediately to just protect my family and my assets. We all predicted it. We all thought. Yeah. And I think in our first episode on this, we thought that was the next step. I think if Jen really wanted to protect her family, instead of spending the money on all the defense, gotten a financial lawyer, a team of a couple lawyers, a tax lawyer, they are very knowledgeable in these areas and gotten a divorce and tried to protect her family more from these types of things. It's all really complicated. So we can't say for sure one way or the other. We can't answer that question for certain one way or the other. The next question. So there was a news article about her going out to dinner after her sentencing. People were appalled. I think everyone deals with things differently. She was there with her family supporting her. She knows she's going to prison. I mean, what does she care anymore? She's going to jail for six and a half years. (laughs) There isn't any PR she can do that's really going to help her situation. Is it the best look? Then she owes all this money in restitution. No. But does Coach Shaw and whoever else was there have money from legitimate sources to pay for that? What is happening with Stu? He hasn't been sentenced yet, to our knowledge. We will let you know when we find out. All right. So some people, when they get sentenced, can leave or as part of their sentence, can leave the prison facility to work. Can Jen do that? I don't know about that for federal prison unless you were in a halfway house. I remember a specific instance at the district attorney's office where there was a man that had three DUIs or something. And so he was ordered to go to jail for six months. He was permitted to serve his sentence on the weekends because he was the only person making an income in his household. He proved how he could use the bus to go to work. They ensured he wouldn't be driving. And the government at that point balanced that on, okay, well, putting this man in jail for six months, like he he absolutely has to be punished, but it's going to harm society more if you know, his wife is at home with three young children on government assistance. He checked himself into jail every weekend until all of those days were served. And so he spent his weekends in jail. So that can happen. I have not heard of that happening in federal prison outside of like a halfway house or work release program. I don't know of anyone checking into the actual prison and then checking out to work. I don't think that's a thing, but I could be wrong, but I don't think that's a thing. All right. And then from Adrian, who is a friend of mine, what were your favorite comments from the judge during the sentencing? I wish I was there (laughs) to like hear all of the comments, but I think I mentioned mine earlier, the trinkets. I just picture Jen Shaw swimming around the ocean, grabbing her fake Gucci purses and being like, my trinkets. Do you have one? I think the fact that the judge, according to this redditor, actually said the words hashtag free Jen Shaw and hearing a federal judge say the word Shaw amazing would have been a surreal experience. But again, we don't have the transcript yet. So another question we've received is why Todd and Julie Chrisley received a higher sentence than Jen Shaw did. And it's important, again, to understand that sentencing is an individual process. There are a number of characteristic factors that go into account. One of the biggest ones, though, that I see here is Jen Shaw pled guilty. She took some level of responsibility for the crimes she committed, whereas Todd and Julie Chrisley still to this day have not taken accountability for the crimes they committed. They did not plead guilty. 
they went to trial and were found guilty of the charges against them, which there were many more than Jen Shaw. Jen Shaw pled guilty to one count of a federal criminal charge. Todd and Julie Chrisley, I don't remember. Go back and listen to our episode to see how many it was. It was definitely more than one. I think it was about five different criminal charges, and they never pled guilty. So that is one of the biggest reasons that Todd and Julie Chrisley got a higher sentence. They had more crimes. They took no responsibility. I've also seen people, again, arguing that what Todd and Julie Chrisley did was victimless. Go back and listen to our sentencing episode. This was not a victimless crime. They screwed over a lot of small banks, a lot of people who worked in those banks. You and I probably got screwed over. They didn't pay their taxes. I mean, just it, it's not victimless. Let's not give people a pass. I think we should end this here. This is our final part on Jen Shaw's sentencing. It's been a wild ride. I want to say thank you to everyone that has turned to us as a resource during the sentencing. We hope that you stick with us as we continue our legal coverage on everything pop culture, reality TV, anything that might arise. We have planned content coming up, but you never know. You never know what might happen next. I've learned so much from covering Jen Shaw. I think we really appreciate, like I said, being your source of information on this case. And we hope that we can be your source in the future. I really think the publicity from this is going to absolutely help prevent future scams of this type. This was a very common scheme that kept popping up. I guarantee you there's some people trying to run it right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is really going to help. We are really excited for a lot of the episodes we have coming up. Like I said, we're going to cover the Hochstein divorce. And then we have a Jersey extravaganza planned for February and March of all kinds of stuff. The mob stuff, the multiple lawsuits against the Gorgas. I mean, there's been so many lawsuits against them. That's probably going to be a couple episodes. We're really excited about all the stuff we're coming up. I actually kind of hope that maybe reality TV people kind of maybe delay for a little bit, getting in more trouble so we can go back to our archives of topics. But join us on our Patreon, follow us on Instagram. We occasionally update our Twitter. And then we have the Docket Lawyers page. And we have our Amazon finds of things that we think might be helpful to you guys. So check that out. Check our merch out. And thank you guys for your support. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.